0: This is Farms Food Future, a podcast that's good for you, good for the planet and good for farmers. Brought to you by the International Fund for Agricultural Development, I'm Brian Thompson. We have the latest from IFAD's Associate Vice President Micah Van Ginneken on how small-scale farmers are dealing with the COVID-19 crisis, and also news from her about IFAD's recent Governing Council. Then USAID's chief nutritionist, Sean Baker, talks to us about the latest research that shows how a decade's worth of progress on food security for children and mothers could be at risk thanks to the pandemic. Coming up, the very clever people at Climate Edge tell us how they are bringing digital services to farmers in developing countries. And with Easter here, some of us might be thinking chocolate eggs, but at Farms Food Future we're thinking about the real thing. In fact, we have a special report on all things egg and chicken related. Plus news on the new Global Prize for the Environment, designed to encourage change and help repair our planet over the next 10 years. Launched by the UK's Prince William, we have a report on the Earthshot Prize. And the glamour doesn't end there. We have an Oscar-nominated filmmaker, Alex Jovi. He'll be talking carbon offsets and reforesting. And there's the next part of our mini-series where we talk to farmers of Afro-descent living in Ecuador, Colombia and Peru. They're all part of the Aqua project. Remember, we want to hear from you. What do you think about our stories and who do you want us to be talking to? So please get in touch with me at podcasts at ifad.org. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast via your favourite podcast platform and please rate us. In the past year, IFAD operations have had to be more resilient, more innovative and more in touch using modern technology with our partners in both donor and developing countries. That's according to Micah Van Ginniken, IFAD's Associate Vice President. But more importantly, how has the pandemic affected those communities we work with? Has our partnership with those communities made them more resilient to COVID-19, climate change and other threats?
1: many of the communities we've been working with for some years actually have been quite resilient. They've saved some money, they have the skills, and they actually have been able to go through a planting season or through a seed season without immediately having to give up all their activities, having to sell their land or sell uh, their livestock. So I think that's what is proof of concept that the work that IFA does with communities actually builds resilience of rural people. But that's not everything. There's vulnerable groups of people that haven't worked with IFAD for such a long time that actually have been exposed to a lack of uh, revenues and which have suffered greatly. Um, You have to take your kids out of school. If you can't um, pay your school kids, you might go hungry. I think our uh, COVID response window which has quite small grants uh, for countries, have, has done an important role in helping these communities to bridge this really difficult time. So overall, the pandemic has been really influential in the work that IFA done does. We're learning very quickly, and I think some of the things we're learning will continue to last even when the restrictions of COVID-19
0: will I have been lifted? Taking that point, Micah, um, what do you think, could you wrap up, are going to be those main lessons learnt from all of this?
1: We were used to travelling for missions. We were used to come to the office every day. And think about it. There's so much we can do from home. There's so much we can do through Zoom, through email, etc. And I think the future will look different. We will probably do missions differently or less missions. We will might not be coming into the office five days a week. As we decentralize, there's important lessons learned here. So I think there's a lot possible, but I also have to say that I really miss the face-to-face contact and the interaction we have between staff and with clients, especially being new in IFAT. I also see the limitations of just communicating uh, digitally and electronically.
0: Just over a month ago, IFAD and 177 government representatives had the first ever Digital Governing Council. Despite the challenges of this brave new world, changes were made to legal texts, making it easier to work in middle-income countries. And after some healthy debate, there was some serious streamlining to improve project implementation but most important, in a replenishment year, how much money is in the pot for the rural poor. Micah told me how that went.
1: Up to the governing council, we got 67 pledges for a total of 1.1 billion US dollars, which is the highest ever level of core contributions. We are expecting 30 or 40 more pledges, maybe more, including from some of our large donors. So we will keep progressing towards our target of scenario D, which is $1.5 billion. At the same time, we will also raise funds for our two flagship projects, the ESA Plus project, focusing on climate adaptation, and the PSFP program, which focuses on private sector engagement. So all in all, the mood was great. And more importantly, the results and the trust from our member states in IFAD is fantastic.
0: Thanks to IFAD's Micah Van Ginniken. Coming up, a report from USAID on how COVID 19 has affected nutrition for women and children. This is Farm's Food Future. A recently released report from USAID highlights the urgency of the malnutrition crisis caused by COVID 19. Sean Baker, USAID's chief nutritionist, talked to us about the devastating impacts of COVID-19 on nutrition and USAID's response. Since the beginning of the pandemic, lockdowns and restrictions have heavily affected both food and health systems, particularly for children and mothers. The report's projected data shows that due to COVID-19, we could see a decade of progress lost in the fight against child wasting. That's a form of malnutrition caused by a sudden loss of food. The loss of a generation of healthy, thriving children is the most serious shock legacy COVID-19 may leave us with. But if we invest, the worst can be avoided. Sean told me more.
2: It's estimated, it's projected that between 2020 through 2022, there will be an increase of about 9.3 million kids suffering from wasting now, this is tragic on many fronts because of the mortality implications, but also because over the last decade or so, we've been actually making quite a bit of progress in bringing down rates of wasting and other forms of malnutrition. And this is setting us back probably more than a decade. That combination of increases in rates of wasting combined with decreases of access to nutrition services, the same group estimates will translate into about 168,000 additional child deaths due just to this one condition now in this part of the the puzzle that we're looking at um we see also that there will be longer-term consequences of children who are suffering from chronic malnutrition or stunting meaning they're not growing to their full potential uh with uh again, reversing trends we've seen with probably an additional 2.6 million children uh, suffering from stunting. And it will have to also have impacts on mothers with increases in anemia uh, and uh, increases in uh, low body mass index, meaning more mothers, about 2.1 million more mothers, uh, suffering nutritional consequences and giving birth to children who will have, you know, con- be, be coming forth for moms who, who suffered nutritional consequences. Now, the, the authors have also tried to say, well, these projections hopefully are not destiny. And what can we do to mitigate it? And it's estimated that with a package of high-impact interventions, we could mitigate these consequences with about an additional $1.2 billion per year over the next three years on top of what's required for uh, Uh, the baseline requirements so in summary the potential impact is really a generation of children who are either losing their lives to malnutrition or suffering irreversible consequences of malnutrition and that's really devastating.
0: Sean you said that this COVID pandemic could set us back more than a decade looking to that longer term legacy of the impacts of this pandemic what could it be?
2: well we hope that the leg what what the numbers i put out actually don't come to realization i think if you try to flip it on a positive side if we act robustly i think we can mitigate a lot of that that, that those consequences of the pandemic and in many ways i think this pandemic has pressure tested every system we rely on to deliver good nutrition it certainly has pressure tested the food system. And let me talk about that a bit. Uh, The State of Food Security and Nutrition of the World that was published this year, one of the the groundbreaking parts of it was looking very specifically about the affordability of healthy, nutritious diets. And what we've seen, while the food system overall has been remarkably resilient in delivering at least necessary calories, it's really suffered a great deal delivering nutritious foods, and particularly nutritious foods for those people who have the highest nutrient requirements, so kids from 6 to 23 months and pregnant and lactating women, and people who are more on the margins. And we've seen in every crisis, be it the current pandemic or going back to the food price crisis of 2007, 2008, when poorer households are faced with purchasing power shocks we immediately need to prioritize purchasing staples versus more nutrient-dense foods, which tend to be more costly and uh, also tend to be perishable. And so that is really the weakest link in the food system. And as we go into 2021 with the United Nations Food System Summit, I think we're taking with us a huge number of lessons learned of the parts of the food system, the parts of the health system, and the parts of social protection that really need to be bolstered if we are going to deliver nutrition
0: outcomes. Thanks to USAID's chief nutritionist, Sean Baker, and that startling message on how we need to invest in food systems now to reduce the impact of the pandemic, particularly on children and mothers in developing countries. Coming up, as Easter gets some of us in the mood for chocolate eggs, we're going with the theme and have a report on the world of chickens. You're listening to Farms Food Future. I'm Brian Thompson. Up next, with Easter in mind, we'll be talking about eggs, or better yet, what came before them, chickens or did it? Our reporter, Kyla Carvalho, spoke to two specialists about poultry and its advantages in terms of financial security, gender equality and climate change.
3: Looking first, the chicken or the egg? Right now, we'll be talking about chicken and small livestock more generally. But what is small livestock? That's how we call small domesticated animals, such as poultry, swine, and rabbits. They are kept for use or profit. We use the terminology to differentiate them from larger animals, such as cattle and buffalo. Small animals require less space and cost less money to buy and raise. Hence, they are more suited to small farmers in developing countries. Because of that, they're often called the asset of the poorest. We can take a look at the PACE project in Bangladesh to see examples of the impact that small livestock can have in the lives of vulnerable families. I spoke to Dr. Akon Rafiqul Islam, project coordinator of the PACE project, about how it supports families who want to start their own business.
4: That means they have the capacity to make enterprise. But first time, they need some money for investment, for the club, their thing. We provide that money. And they then uh, used to take a technology, technical support training. We also provide them.
3: In this case, borrowers use the money to invest in chicken and also get the training needed to raise and sell it properly. As mentioned, small livestock can change the lives of families by providing some financial security to them the pace project is a good example of that as dr islam told me
4: before that project when disaster came they actually ruined they they, they that time they were ruined but now they have some money they uh, deposit their money in national bank also in the ngos and when they need when they in, in trouble they use that money and at that same time they um, send their children to school. So they are secured, secured because they have some money, extra money because of that, that investment.
3: Chicken and small livestock in general can also be an important asset for gender equality. Of course, it is an important source of income for both men and women in developing countries. But it is crucial to women because they are more likely to be the owners of small livestock, while men tend to keep larger animals cow in particular. I spoke to Antonio Rota, the EFAD Lead Technical Specialist in Livestock Development, and he told me how that works.
5: There are studies that show that women prefer small livestock because they are more directly linked to food production and for food security. Indeed, small livestock, uh, not only can be sold and exchanged to fulfill the immediate cash requirements of the household. But it provides also nutritious food for household consumption, such as uh, meat, milk, and eggs. Keeping small livestock, such as poultry, doesn't uh, usually conflict with uh, women's other household duties. Uh, They are very simple to keep. They don't require too much time. Uh, And also, since uh, I've been uh, working in in countries where religious beliefs and social norms require women to stay in their home or villages, keeping poultry or small livestock in the household make uh, a convenient income-generating activity.
3: In fact, most of the borrowers in the PACE project are women, according to Dr. Islam.
5: You know, in our
4: country, the microdict, actually micro-dead borrowers are 95, 6, 97% female. So female are used to rearing poultry, you know, in our Asia, uh, Asia's countries. So we provide them money and technical support to rear uh, chicken or poultry. And then they uh, come up with uh, from from the poverty.
3: And women are also the ones investing back in their households, as Antonio Rota told me.
5: There are studies saying that 90% of income under the control of women is invested back into their household, while only 30-40% are spent in the household from men women use their income to increase the quantity and the variety of food purchased, they spend the income generated from small livestock on medical care and school fees for the children.
3: Culture also plays a significant role in determining which type of livestock different peoples will prefer to raise. In Bangladesh, for example, a very diverse country in terms of religion, Poultry has an advantage over other types of meat.
4: Poultry, actually, the meat, which is favorable for all people of Bangladesh, but other meat is segregated by reason uh, religious matters. That means beef is for Muslim, beef is not for Hindu, pork is only for Christian or other not, but the poultry is all over the country, 160 million people. So demand is so high, so this poultry actually hit the poor household.
3: So a financial asset, an asset in the fight for gender equality, and also a type of meat widely accepted by different peoples. And it isn't over. Despite the fact that livestock production in general has been constantly associated with climate change, small livestock are responsible for a much minor part and might be a good alternative to larger livestock.
5: Among the, the, the livestock species, mostly large ruminants, therefore animals such as uh, beef and dairy cattle, play a major role. FIO estimates that they contribute about 62% of the entire livestock sector emission small livestock play a minor role representing uh, between seven and eleven percent of the livestock sector emission. and this is why uh, they represent a good alternative to cattle in general production and, and also there is a, a strong advocacy, especially from environmental organizations which push consumers to introduce, animal source protein from small livestock, especially poultry rather than from beef cattle. So this is the reason why small livestock uh, is a good alternative.
3: As you've seen, chicken has a lot of uses and advantages over other livestock. Thank you to Antonio Rota and Dr. Islam for talking to us about it. To learn more about the small livestock advantage and about the PACE project, please visit ifad.org.
0: That was Kayla Carvalho on chicken and small livestock. Coming up, we're heading to the Climate Edge. Climate Edge is a company dedicated to increasing the profitability and stability of smallholder agriculture. Their mission is to revolutionize how services are delivered to this market. As part of that, they've been developing a platform that allows agricultural service providers to reach an audience at scale which has previously had little access to these services, that audience being smallholder farmers without internet and smartphones. I spoke with Paul Baranofsky, CEO and co-founder of Climate Edge. He told me how they started out after university, building on their research from that time to start Climate Edge Back in 2016, tailoring services to individual farmers is what it's all about. Paul told me more.
6: So in a nutshell, agricultural services give farmers the information and the knowledge they need to make better decisions. So in any given growing season or any given day even, a farmer faces hundreds of decisions from what crops to plant to how much to water they should apply to their field to when they should spray against pests, even when they should harvest. And as you would expect, the impact of these decisions is enormous. So just to illustrate this, if you leave your irrigation on for too long, you end up washing out key nutrients from your soil. And this has the dual impact of both reducing yield, as your plants obviously don't have access to those nutrients anymore, but also wasting the hundreds of pounds you just spent on buying that fertilizer in the first place. And Here, what you can begin to see is that these decisions are not just consequential, but also really quite complicated and interconnected. And so it's no surprise that the impact of being able to access information to support these decisions through the medium of agricultural services is massive. This is especially the case for smallholders who often lack that broader support structure. It has actually been proven that uh, helping smallholders access services can improve farm level income by over 80%. And beyond income, services also have huge impacts on the climate and the environment. So, to give a, a concrete example from our work, we helped Cranfield University launch an irrigation service for a group of smallholder banana farmers who are facing that exact uh, overwatering challenge that I mentioned earlier. And by using farm level climatic data, and detailed crop modeling, what Cranville could do was provide these farmers with an optimized irrigation schedule. And when the farmers received this information, what ended up happening is they reduced their water usage by an average of 40%. And this reduced you know, diesel pump costs, <clears throat> reduced emissions from diesel pumps, uh, reduced the leaching of nutrients, reduced the overextraction of local water sources, and it even saved those farmers hours of work each week. And this is really what our vision at Climate Edge is all about. It's how do you ensure that every farmer has access to valuable services.
0: So how does your platform reach small scale farmers in developing countries and they often don't have access to Internet or mobile technologies?
6: So unfortunately, despite the huge benefits that these agricultural services can bring, there are actually very few available within emerging markets. So over 90% of sub-Saharan smallholder farmers have zero access to any type of value-adding service. And as you can imagine, this perpetuates low farm productivity and during cycles of poverty. So a major cause of this low service penetration is the fact that scaling services within this environment is a unique challenge. And this is you know largely for the exact reasons that you state. So farmers don't typically have access to computers or smartphones or sometimes even the internet. And so much of the infrastructure that has been used to drive the wave of ag tech innovation in Europe simply just doesn't translate to these markets. And Climate Edge is solving this problem. By building a SaaS platform, so software as a service platform, that allows providers to digitize and scale services within emerging markets. So without having to write a single line of code, providers can build services using our web app. They can turn their mathematical models into operationalized code so it can scale. Uh, they can host their services on our infrastructure, so it doesn't matter whether one farmer or a million farmers are accessing it, uh, and they can power their models with dynamic data. So exactly as like I said before, you know, in the case of Cranfield, that'd be the, the on-farm climatic data. So to ensure that the services that are hosted on our platform are accessible to all farmers, we have built an intuitive SMS chatbot interface. So this interface allows farmers to subscribe, receive, and interact with complex services, directly from their feature phones, so purely using SMS. And by combining the power of the latest technology and latest services and innovation with the simplicity of SMS, we can ensure that every farmer has access to world-class services.
0: Reading through some of your material, I I noticed that you've got a a rather interesting project going on in Kenya. Can can you tell me a little bit more about that?
6: So we launched our platform in Kenya uh, and actually been doing some work in Colombia as well. And we're helping some really great organizations scale their digital services to their farmer networks. And what's really exciting for us as a team is to see the diversity of impact that these organizations can have. So our technology can be applied to crop insurance, pest alerts, fertilizer recommendations, market prices, digital receipts, and so on. Uh, As an example of this, we're helping Cranfield and Unilever develop a fertilizer recommendation service. Essentially, this uses uh, each farmer's yield and on farm climatic data to estimate how much fertilizer that farmer needs to apply to their farm. Uh, another great example is Producers Direct, who are an award winning NGO, and they're p- pioneering how farmers can diversify their farms through new practices such as beekeeping and kitchen gardens. Uh, and of course, we're always looking for new partnerships to help scale services to farmers. So if anyone is listening uh, who is interested, and we'd love to hear from you uh, and see what we can do.
0: That was Paul Baranofsky. And you can find out more about Climate Edge by going to climate-edge.com. And you can hear more IFAD podcasts at ifad.org forward slash podcasts. Up next, we're talking Earthshot. The Earthshot Prize is a new global award for the environment designed to incentivize change and help to repair our planet over the next 10 years. It was launched last year by the UK's Prince William and the Royal Foundation. Our intrepid reporter Kayla Carvalho interviewed Apurva Oza, global lead for sustainable agriculture and CEO of the Aga Khan Rural Support Programme, one of the supporters of the Earthshot Prize. He explained to us what the foundation is about and how it connects to the prize.
7: The Aga Khan Development Network, or AKDN, is a group of private, international, non-denominational agencies working to improve living conditions and opportunities for people in specific remote regions of the developing world. Uh, The network's organisations have individual mandates ranging from Health, education, and rural development, etc. The Aga Khan Foundation works in differing contexts the mountain ecosystems of Afghanistan, Tajikistan, northern Pakistan, and Kyrgyzstan, the coastal areas of India, East Africa, Mozambique, and Madagascar, and the plains of South Asia and Africa. Uh, the work that the Aga Khan Foundation does on agriculture. Is largely focused on enhancing livelihoods, enhancing food and natural uh, and food and nutrition, sustainable management of water and soil, and improving resilience towards climate change.
3: And how is the AKDN supporting the Earthshot Prize as a global alliance founding partner?
7: The AKDN is proud to be a global alliance founding partner. Uh, working with the Earthshot Prize to deliver the ambition, scale, and reach of the prize both through funding and shared partnership objectives. The shared values between the Earthshot Prize and the EKDN is the heart of this collaboration.
3: What are the five Earthshot challenges? Uh, These are
7: uh, cleaning our air, reviving our oceans, fixing our climate, protecting and restoring nature, and building a waste-free world. And these uh, five uh, challenges are distinct, measurable, and yet interrelated, and together they can help repair our planet over the next 10 years.
3: Can you identify the most impactful solutions to those challenges?
7: These are all interrelated. You can't, let's say, revive our oceans unless you build a waste-free world. You can't fix our climate unless you protect and restore nature. You cannot clean our air, unless you not only restore nature, but reduce waste. And you cannot fix the entire climate unless you do all of these four things together. So, these are interrelated and yet separately measurable and separately doable challenges, uh, which the Earthshot price has. So, uh, and we think that because it's a price which will continue for 10 years, Therefore, over a period of 10 years, you will have uh, 50 solutions and and they will cover the the range of problems which the Earth faces and we'll then be able to address these problems. We'll be able to energize uh, uh, humanity. Uh, we'll We'll have to be able to bring optimism to humanity that these are problems which we can solve if we work together.
3: What are the ambitions of the AKDN and the Earthshot Prize in terms of scale and reach of the prize?
7: Ambitions are that we have solutions which cover the entire Earth. So all the continents with all the diversity. So we are not looking at one region, one environment, one uh, ecosystem. We are looking at solutions which uh, address all the ecosystems and all the environments.
3: What is the importance of the Earthshot Prize for our future?
7: In a world where larger problems like climate change and environment uh, become overwhelming and uh, cause a sense of pessimism, this prize is there to inject optimism uh, and incentivize change to help repair our planet over the next 10
0: years. That was Kayla Carvalho on the Earthshot Prize. Coming up, news from the reforesting frontline with Oscar-nominated filmmaker and author Alex Jovi. You're listening to Farms Food Future. Alex Jovi is a man of many skills, an Oscar-nominated filmmaker, author of many books, and now runs an operation called mytree.org.uk. What started out as a reforesting memorial project, where families could lay the ashes of a loved one and plant a tree, is now being developed further into a carbon offset tree banking facility. An interesting fact, the average UK citizen's carbon footprint is 6.5 tonnes per year. This can be offset by planting 28 small trees, and as they grow, you have excess carbon credits to trade. The park lies over 14 hectares and already has 500 trees planted with room for up to 35,000. Landscaped with nature in mind, you can wander down Lime Alley or shelter in Chestnut Grove. I caught up with Alex, who's based in the UK, and asked him how he started his journey from Hollywood and the movie business to Berkshire and the carbon offsets market.
8: Uh, sort of analysed what my passion is and and sort of the pattern, the underlying pattern I had is I've always sort of loved nature and being out in nature and and, and planting as a hobby and and, and, uh, being able to grow things where other people say, no, you can't grow this in this country. or don't do this. And so, so I've always love doing this and, and sort of just I found naturally coming back to this has been sort of uh, very easy and very fulfilling you know I, I spent uh, uh, my typical day today was sort of uh, doing a lot of paperwork admin and, and, and everything around and then over lunchtime whenever I went for lunch break you know I went to the nursery and uh, and repotted 30 trees you know just you know, out in some fresh air and then now I'm back obviously at work but uh, um, so, so I, I just love doing this and, and yeah I have, I have a very mixed background, uh, you know, for, from filmmaking to, to writing, and and I sort of combined it a little bit. So my, my, um, I had a, my latest novel, which just came out at Christmas, called The Girl with the Griffin Bracelet. So I vouch that everyone who purchases a book, we will plant a tree to offset the, uh, uh, the paper used in the book. So, um, it, you know, if the book takes off, then, you know, we'll be planting
0: lots of trees. So it's just sort of finding new angles as well. How would you describe the feeling you get when you walk through this this park that you've built? What does it feel like? So, I, I mean, designing something like this and, and building it is obviously
8: amazing. I'm, I'm sort of a personal big fan of, of trees and forests. And, and if you have the opportunity to uh, work out a planting schedule and, and plant what you feel comfortable with and, and do that, it's just amazing. But more satisfactory is seeing, you know, trees grow and see how they shape and what they turn into and just sort of bringing enjoyment uh, to people with it. But um, I, I specifically had this idea a number of years ago when my father passed away and I thought um, uh, it'd be a nice thing to, uh, you know, rather than uh, to bury him in a in, in graveyard, to sort of have a tree that sort of... Uh, it gets generated back again out of the ashes or, or just as a symbolic sign
0: that sort of a new life uh, is sort of growing. And that's sort of where the idea came from. There must be quite a bit of maintenance and care that goes into to getting this started and getting the plants up and running.
8: Yeah, so this is sort of a common deception. So people think you can just plant a tree and then it'd be fine. And sometimes that is the case. But uh, we have to sort of consider a lot of things. So mainly we have sort of a, a planting season, um, although... If, sort of a potted tree, you can probably plant it all year round. But there's sort of a planting season you need to adhere to. Uh, then an initial tree needs sort of a lot of care. So you need to stake the tree, you need to protect the tree, you need to consider sort of wildlife that might be able to damage the tree. And then of course, you're sub- susceptible to uh, um, different uh,
0: weather patterns. It's, it's not just about memorials to people who've passed though, is it? It's also about celebration and and, and, and and other things as well that people can plant a tree.
8: Yeah, so, so, so the idea is it's really for any occasion and, and we get sort of uh, families who like the idea that they'd like to plant a tree with their children and as the children grows up, the, the, the tree grows and it sort of becomes sort of a bit of a focal point for the family that they can go and visit the tree with possibly different generations as well as, as marking occasions sort of, uh, you know, we get weddings or we get... Uh, uh, um, people who just have achieved something in life and business, and they want to mark the, the occasion with with the tree. But but we're also uh, also going into a sort of uh, um, which is also very topical. Obviously, we believe in sort of a, that that the trees can also make a change to, to climate change in, in the sense of uh, carbon offsetting. And so uh, we have, a uh, um, tree is over, uh, our park is over 35 acres, this particular one, and an area on the tree is designated to what we call and, and soon be launching as an app called Carbon Tree Banking, where we offer, so, so our memorial trees are a certain size and uh, uh, and a different variety, designated as a memorial tree with a plaque and everything. We have a carbon banking tree, which is different. It's a smaller tree. It produces a a certain amount. So people can collect these trees and through the app combine them, and then they can um, really see what the carbon offset is. And as the trees grow, they produce more. And so they have more available in credits which they can then trade with companies who need this offset. So, so, so we really cater for quite a wide variety with our park. If you're local, also use it as a memorial park.
0: Thanks to Alex Jovi, the man from the movies who's moved to the carbon offset tree banking business. The MyTree app has launched recently and more details can be found at mytree.org.uk. All in all, an interesting use of land, which also raises issues around farming and carbon markets for developing countries. You can also find out more about what the International Fund for Agricultural Development is all about by going to our website, www.ifad.org. And you can also find more about our podcasts at the same address, forward slash podcasts please go to ifad.org forward slash podcast to hear our other scintillating shows in episode 15 we heard from ifad's goodwill ambassador sabrina elba in episode 16 we talked about the indigenous peoples forum and in episode 17 we focused on gender for international women's day all that and lots more in farms food future but back to this edition and coming up we have the third episode of the aqua mini series on women leaders the Afro-Descendant Cultural Assets Foundation, or AQUA, works with IFAD developing and supporting projects in Latin America. Our reporter, Rosie Gonzalez, talked to gender expert and home chef Teofila Betancourt, who works with the AQUA Foundation, fighting gender inequality in Afro-Colombian communities.
9: Teofila Betancourt is a home chef from Guapi in Colombia. She set up the Chiyangwa Foundation in her region in the Pacific to encourage women to become leaders in their community. I asked Theofila about the gender-focused GIZ German cooperation project supported by IFAD and AQUA, the consequences it had for female victims of armed conflict and the benefits she's seen in her community as a result. To be honest, first and foremost, identifying new leaders within the territory the recovery of traditional practices and knowledge that have given us the strength to continue on our path, the reconstruction of the social fabric through the creation of new community organisations and their reinforcement, women and mixed organisations. I think that the positioning of local products at a national and local level, many of which had been lost or forgotten, like plants for seasoning. Nowadays, coconut, rice and sugarcane are a vital source of income for many families in the Pacific. There are countless products that have enriched our diet and helped us to get back to the healthy way we used to eat. Another major achievement has been the recognition of our work at an institutional level and the creation of space is for debate, such as the Women's Community Councils, which are the municipal areas that interact with all the local institutions and follow up on all the policies concerning women within the municipality. We have become more independent because we have strengthened our own economy through our productive activities. We are women who interact in any space based on what we are, what we know and what we have. There has been a lot of progress. I can't mention everything today, but you can feel it in the consolidation that exists in a sub-regional process with more than 68 organisations in the three municipalities of the Caucasian Pacific Coast, Huapi, López and Timbiki. With AQUA, we have been working together on different activities in the Pacific region of Cauca to increase participation levels and the political influence of women within the municipalities. We realized that it was important to be able to initiate a process for the construction of public policy for the women in Guapi, and from there, with the support of FOCUS and Aqua we wanted to be able to move forward in other areas. The idea of presenting the project to the GIZ to work on public policy in Timbiquí and Charconariño came about because we were already making progress in carrying out the diagnosis for public policy in López, an alliance between Focus, Aqua and the Chi-Yangwa Foundation through resources provided by the UNHCR. And the idea came about in a context where women are doing positive things for their development and well-being. But we live in a region that has been badly hit by armed conflict as well as violence and abuse experienced at a social level. When I give myself credit, acknowledge what I give, know what I contribute, what I build and what I share with other women and men in my community, I see the importance of what I do and the effect it has on my personal growth in helping me move forward and into action. And that makes me feel great and empowered. The traditional practices and knowledge of our communities have really served us as a tool for empowerment, visibility and self-esteem as women. And from there we can advance proposals for our well-being and development, not only as women, but for the whole community.
0: Thank you, Rosie, for that report. That was Teofila Betancourt from Colombia in the third part of our mini-series Aqua Women Leaders. Next month, we'll have Dorina Hernandez from San Basileo de Palenque in Colombia joining us looking at the lives of Afro-descendant people in rural communities across Colombia. And that brings us to the end of this edition of Farm's Food Future. Thanks to our producer, Francesco Manetti, our reporters, Rosie Gonzalez, Kayla Carvalho, Margaret Goring, and everyone else who's worked on this programme. But most of all, thanks to you for listening to this episode of Farms Food Future, brought to you by the International Fund for Agricultural Development. You can find out more about any of these stories at www.ifad.org. Remember, we want to hear from you. What do you think about our stories and issues discussed? And who do you want us to be talking to? So please get in touch with me at podcasts at ifad.org. Send us your voice or text messages to that address and we'll be happy to play you out in the next program. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast via your favourite podcast platform and please rate us. I'll be back at the end of April with more news fresh from the farm. We'll be talking farmers' mental health, art and farming, and to the people at Chefs for the Planet. And once again, we'll be trying to be good for you, good for the planet and good for the farmers. Until then, from me, Brian Thompson and the team here at IFAD, thanks for listening.